sing praises to the Lord. My name is Bill, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm going to read from Judges 8:22 through 32. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rested 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and, he, and called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in the in the good old age and buried him in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah and of the Abizarites. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for teaching from your word, Heavenly Father. Lord, you are an awesome God. You are a God that deserves all honor and I praise. And I thank you for this opportunity we have. Lord, I thank you for North Shore Church, Lord, for protecting it 130 plus years, Lord. That truly is a gift to us, Lord. And, and what a legacy, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I, I pray for the ministries here, Lord. I, I pray for the, the children's downstairs and roots right now, Lord. What a blessing it is to have those children here, Lord, to be learning about your word. And for the teachers and helpers, Lord, for the nursery, Heavenly Father, and the children here that are being loved on. And, and Lord, I, I thank you. And what a gift it is, Heavenly Father. Pray for I thank you for Sunday school, Lord, and I th um, for all ages, Lord. I, and Lord, I, I I thank you for the ministries we have here, and I pray for them, Lord, for the prayer ministry, Lord. I I pray that we can be a a body of believers that just prays and continually petitions to you and and for your will, Heavenly Father. I thank you and and for the worship team, Lord, and. Thank you for the youth workers and, and the leaders, Lord. And, and I just pray for them, Lord. I pray for the community groups, Lord, that we have and that are forming and, and that we would just grow to love you and each other more and, and to be your hands and feet, Heavenly Father. I just thank you for being our God. I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Pray for the message. 
Our Father and our God, we're grateful for the Word of God. Thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it pierces to the heart and spirit, dividing. Thank you, God, that it does not return void, but it accomplishes what you purpose for it. And so, God, we come with confidence in the power of the inerrant Word of God today. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move, move in my heart, use me for Jesus' sake, and God, be honored as you work in the lives of your people. Father, do whatever you need to do today so that Jesus can be made much of in this church. We ask all of it in his name. Amen. Well, we continue in the book of Judges. This morning we're going to be concluding the story of Gideon, which you just heard Bill read. If you really understand what the author reveals about Gideon, which is, as we'll see today even more clearly, very negative. And then you see also, at the same time, the impressive exploits for God that Gideon perpetrates. You may feel some tension there. The tension in the Gideon account, and frankly all of Judges to some degree, comes from the way these two truths, that on the one hand, pretty negative portrayal, and yet God uses him in a big way, those can be giving some tension inside. We know that God uses Gideon in remarkable ways. In Judges chapter 8.35, after the text that Bill read, the author condemns Gideon's fellow Jews. And the reason he condemns them is says, they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. There you go. Gideon had done a lot of good for Israel. It says it right there. You can't deny it. His military exploits, which we saw last time, showed miraculous power in a way that ranks with, frankly, some of the most exciting conquests in the Old Testament. Okay? The story we looked at earlier, where he led 300 Israelites against a Midianite army of 135,000, that's an amazing testimony of God's hand resting squarely on this guy. Clearly, God chose to use him in wonderful ways. But the other truth about Gideon, which is just as clear in these stories, and especially the one that Bill read for today, is he is a horribly flawed man. And though he is a Jew, he lives essentially as a pagan, like the pagans who lived around him. All of God's servants are frail, and all of us are flawed. But Gideon's weaknesses are especially glaring and troubling. Despite God's dramatic call, which we read a few weeks ago, miraculous call, very unique call, and the multiple and powerful assurances that God gives to Gideon to show his power and his provision for him, Gideon consistently refuses to trust God. He needs sign after sign of God's faithfulness to impel him to do what he wants to do. The last account we examined in chapter 7 and 8, the last time we were together, reveal an intensely self-centered guy. Gideon wasn't living to please God. He was living to please and glorify Gideon. We saw that he actually used the power of God for his own agenda, for his own glory. The narrative we're going to look at this week sets these two radically different pictures side by side, and the tension is at an all-time high. Now, we can try to resolve that tension in at least three ways. We can do what most people in the church do with these stories. That is, we refuse to let the author of Judges speak for himself, 
and we can minimize Gideon's weaknesses. We can kind of characterize Gideon as a war hero with a few warts. That's the traditional way that much of the church has tried to resolve this tension. They've largely ignored the very clear message of the book of Judges and allowed one statement in the New Testament, which we'll look at later, to dictate their understanding of the book of Judges. Many of you in Sunday school as a kid were taught to see Gideon and, frankly, a whole lot of the judges in a positive light. That understanding is simply not possible when you actually read Judges and see the clear message of the author, which you're going to see very clearly today. Second, we could try to ease this tension by denying that God used Gideon in any significant way and try to figure out an alternative explanation for all the miracles. That's not going to fly. Either one of those two options might help us with the tension. The problem is neither of them represents what the book of Judges actually teaches. The text clearly favors this third option, that is to see that the author is saying that one, Gideon is a horribly flawed, paganized man, and two, God uses this horribly flawed, paganized man in magnificent ways. Now that option requires us to hold these truths in tension. We don't like that, okay? It's messy. We don't want messy stories. It feels a whole lot more consistent for us for God to use for his glory only those godly leaders who are sold out to him. That's not reality. And because the Bible is true, it shows us reality. The good news, even with the tension, is that if we're willing to live with these tensions in scriptures, as we pursue them, they almost always lead us to some of the most profound truths about God in all the Bible, when we're willing to go to those places. So let's move to this last section of Gideon's life that Bill was reading about. You'll remember from last time that thanks to several miracles of God, Midian, or Gideon, leads the army of God over these massive Midianite forces. And as the battle is ending, he recruits several other Jews from some of the other tribes to kind of do a mop-up operation to finish off the remaining Midianites. And after a lengthy chase, he finally catches two Midianite kings. He kills them, and he takes for himself their royal ornaments from the necks of their camels. We read that last time. And that completes the victory. And Gideon now finds himself, in the text that we read today, in the position of a venerated war hero in the eyes of Israel. Okay? That leads us up to what Bill read today. This story not only reveals us something important about God and about Gideon, it also shows us some very important truths about where the people, the Jews, were at this time. In verse 22, the people tell Gideon they want him to rule over them as their king. And by the way, we also want your son and your grandson. We want a dynasty of Gideon's families to rule over us. That's what they're seeking to establish for as long as they can tell, son and grandson. Okay? Rather than wait for God to give them a king and follow God's prescribed method for anointing kings, which is clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 17, these people rush ahead of God, and the scholars tell us that the way these people going about appointing Gideon as their king is just like the way the pagan nations appointed their kings. Same way. In Deuteronomy 17, God stipulates that he alone is the true king of Israel, and he, when it is time, will anoint a human king for his people. So these paganized Jews are trampling all over God's ordained procedure. From this we see that the turning away of the Jews from God is not just in their pagan desires to worship other gods. They also 
want a king like the other pagan nations do. And they use this Canaanite methodology to try to secure one for themselves. The spiritual blindness of the Jews, however, is seen most glaringly in their stated rationale for wanting Gideon as their king. Verse 22 says, For you saved us from the hand of Midian. If you were here last time, you might say, Who? <laughs> who saved them from the hand of the Midianites? Was it Gideon who commanded those 300 men to blow their temple? trumpets and to charge this vast army with farm implements for weapons? Is that really on Gideon? Does he get the credit for that? The fact that these people Gideon, give Gideon credit for this shouldn't surprise us because if you remember, Gideon has already set the stage for that understanding. He did this in chapter 7 verse 18 when he had given his men as their ward cry for the Lord and for Gideon. See? So Gideon, from the very outset, failed to make it clear that any victory would be totally, absolutely dependent on the Lord. And he injects himself into the picture, which was ridiculous. That's all these paganized Jews need to give Gideon credit for this victory. Now, let's look at the main two truths that emerge from this story. We see the first truth as the author reveals the final and conclusive evidence of Gideon's pagan heart and it's overwhelming. The second truth is seen in the revelation of God's unspeakable grace to Gideon and his people. So we need to look through this. Beginning in verse, oh, let's take it in 23. No, let's do this first. The second truth is God's grace. The first truth from Gideon's life, we could say this way, it's possible to live outwardly for God while being inwardly opposed to him. Okay, Gideon exemplifies that. It's possible to live outwardly for God while being inwardly opposed to him. Okay, so we need to meet ourselves in Gideon if that's where we are. The final count of this narrative reveals that although Gideon had torn down the idol in his father's backyard, he hadn't done anything to take the one that was in his own heart. That's a problem. In response to this claim, I can hear the objection, well, wait a minute, you're being kind of hard on him, aren't you? I mean, verse 23, it's true that when these Jews come to him and ask him to be their king, listen to what Gideon says. It says, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule, you, will, will, will rule over you, okay? This is a very good profession, okay? Good for you, Gideon, and it reveals that he does understand a theology of kingship as it's taught in the Law of Moses. Gideon gets it, and he makes this eloquent profession of what has to happen here. Not me. God is the king, okay? The problem is, in the next several verses, he denies every bit of that by his actions, okay? One of the things that we learn from Gideon, like we sometimes learn from ourselves, is you don't just focus on what he says. You better look at what he does, because what he says is often very different than what he does, Okay? An old Bible teacher I knew used to say, what you believe you do, all the rest is just religious talk. Well, from what Gideon does, after this profession about God alone being king, Gideon shows himself to be a person who's just full of religious talk. Notice from the rest of the story, two proves, though he was a Jew, in what he said, what he did revealed, that he was thoroughly paganized. Let's look at this. The first proof that Gideon had a pagan heart, in spite of what he'd earlier said about God being the king, 
is self-evident. That is, Gideon never corrects the Jews' twisted confession of the defeat of the Midianites. That's obvious. We alluded to that earlier. In verse 22, the Israelites say, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Okay? The silence from Gideon in response to that ridiculous statement is deafening. Here are these Jews giving Gideon all the credit for these clearly miraculous military miracles that he knew very well was totally from God. And yet when these people tell him it was him who saved them from the Midianites, his silence communicates that in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, he either tacitly agrees with his absurd statement or he wants them to believe that he agrees with it. His response should have been more like, what are you talking about? I saved you out of the hands of the Midianites. God did the work. I just led the charge. This was God's fight from beginning to end. Where are you coming off talking about me leading the, Midi leading the defeat of the Midianites? Gideon's response to steal God's glory here indicates there's a big problem with his heart. His outward refusal to take the throne of Israel seems like a very noble declaration but it's betrayed here in his selfish attempt to seize for himself the glory from God. A second proof that Gideon's heart is paganized is Gideon, after outwardly refusing an official kingdom in Israel, establishes an unofficial monarchy with himself on the throne. That's what all these details are about here. Okay? The story reveals this in at least four ways. First, Gideon asks for a portion of the spoils of war. Okay. Right after Gideon professes to refuse the throne in verse 23, he then says in verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they did have gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Later in verse 26 we read, And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Okay, 1,700 shekels is 43 pounds of gold. Okay, that's a lot of gold. That's a lot of gold today. But in that period of time, that was an indescribable amount of money. Okay, one reason the author includes this detail for us is because in the ancient Near East, it was the practice of victorious warriors to give the spoils of war to their king as a sign of submission to him. And Gideon says, give me the spoils of war. Okay? So when he renounces verbally the office of the king, here he asks for a very nice perk that ne these men would have known rightly belonged only to kings. Also, 43 pounds of gold is not consistent with the wealth of even a very successful person in the ancient Near East. There was only one class of people that had this kind of dough, royalty. Okay? This amount of money would have been the size of a king's treasury. So although Gideon here may have outwardly swung off the throne in what he said, what he does here secures for himself a king-size net worth. Second way Gideon establishes an unofficial monarchy in Israel is in the second half of verse 26, where we read that along with the gold, Gideon also kept as plunder from the Midianites, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. What the author is saying here is clear enough. Gideon makes himself the unofficial king of Israel by surrounding himself with symbols of the throne. What does a person request royal garments, royal pendants, 
royal chains and a royal wardrobe for purple was worn only by kings. So why does he request all of that stuff? Why does a person possess and surround himself with these royal vestments unless, of course, he sees himself as royalty and he wants other people to see him that way too? This stuff should have been melted down and or destroyed. These were the trappings of pagan kings that Yahweh had crushed. Okay? What's Gideon doing with these pagan articles if not using to promote himself as a person who was a royal figure? The third and perhaps the most disgusting way that Gideon sets himself up unofficially as the king is in verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it, this is talking about the gold, and put it in his city in Oprah, and all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now, an ephod was a, a vest-like garment, and it was worn only by high priests. And so Gideon has the gold-shaped image in the form of an ephod. What we don't know is what kind of graven image the ephod is draped over. We know it was pagan because it says that the Jews hoard after it. That is, they committed spiritual adultery by worshiping it as God instead of Yahweh, who is their true spiritual husband. Gideon was, in his heart, a pagan like the Canaanites who lived around him. His religion was this satanic blend of Baal worship and Judaism. And we know from verse 33 that when he died, what little spiritual restraint he did manage to extract from the Jews was lost completely. They exclusively gave themselves to pagan worship right after he dies. And it's Gideon as their leader by his consistently pagan actions that paves the way for that. Gideon's terrible spiritual leadership here is just one more piece of evidence of his desire for kingly influence. We know that because a king's responsibility in pagan lands was to be the official sponsor of the national religion among his people. Okay? It wasn't given by God because they didn't have a God. It was given by the king. When Gideon makes the ephod out of gold, he's simply fulfilling his royal responsibility to set up a pagan national religion. And we know that's what's happening because in verse 27 it says, And all Israel hoard after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So notwithstanding this profession he gives, to the contrary, Gideon is the unofficial, undeclared king of Israel at this point, and the author relates these specific details the way he does to show us that. All of these details point in the same direction. He's a king. He's setting himself as a king. But a final way we see Gideon setting himself up as the unofficial king of Israel is in verse 29. Verse 29 says, Jerubbaal, or Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Well, that's a curious verse. Of course he went and lived in his own house. Where else is he going to live? Well, the Hebrew verb here for lived is also translated to sit, as in to sit on a throne. Okay? So what's going on here is that Gideon established his home in Oprah as his royal dwelling place. This is supported by verse 30. When we read that he has 70 sons, we don't know how many daughters he had, and he had many wives. For a private citizen to have the number of wives necessary to birth a clan of 70 sons would have been virtually unheard of. This was, however, a very typical family structure of an ancient Near Eastern king. Okay? So we see another betrayal of Gideon's profession that the Lord is king of Israel because he establishes for himself a palace and a family fit for a king. 
but there's more. Not only did he have all of these wives and children, but according to verse 31, he had at least one concubine. Now, a concubine was a woman who existed to provide sexual pleasure for a man and to bear him children. The author reveals that the concubine bore Gideon a son whose name was Abimelech. And the name Abimelech means, my father is king. Okay? So you kind of get that this is explicit at this point. The further it goes in the narrative, it gets more explicit. When you understand what the author is revealing about Gideon by the details he includes in the story, this is a horribly unflattering picture of this man. Okay? As we followed his life, we've seen the author progressively reveal that while Gideon has an orthodox profession, on the outside, he looks okay. His heart is full of idolatry and selfish ambition. And this story is the most vivid example because it reveals that though Gideon knew the right thing to do and even professed it, what he did totally betrayed God. So in addition to all of his other sins, we can now add hypocrisy to the list. That's why this incredible statement in verse 28 should produce even more internal tension within us because right smack in this section where the author is unmistakably revealing the idolatrous heart of the Jews and their leader Gideon, we read this breathtaking pronouncement of God's grace in verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Okay, that should give you a headache. <laughs> Okay? That doesn't seem to fit, does it, right? Even though the people gave all the credit for their victory to this disingenuous, unbelieving Gideon, even though Gideon has set himself up as the de facto king, usurping God's rightful place in the eyes of the people, even though Gideon has used God's miraculous power to further his own agenda and his own glory, even with all of that going on, God gives these ungrateful, idolatrous people with his hypocritical leader 40 years of peace. People who say they don't like reading the Old Testament because they want to hear about God's grace have never read the Old Testament carefully. It's chock full of grace. This story is just one example. In our minds, at least in my mind, this disgusting episode should conclude with these words. Therefore, God verily smote Gideon and his entire pagan household and the Midianites increased in the land, harshly oppressing the Jews until they repented of their idolatries. Okay, that would relieve all of the tension, wouldn't it? Okay? That's what I would like it to say. Instead of doing that, God delivers his paganized people from the hands of their oppressors, and he uses his self-seeking, glory-pilfering, throne-usurping, hypocritical idolater to accomplish his plan. That's what the text says. From that truth, we move to a second truth, and that is what it tells us about God. And that should be our main concern whenever we read the Bible. What does it tell us about God? Does it really teach that God just doesn't care at all about whether his people are ungrateful idolaters? If you think that, you haven't read the rest of the book. That would be a disastrously wrong conclusion to draw from this narrative, and the rest of the book makes that very clear. What it tells us is that God is a God of immeasurable, almost unbelievable grace. It reminds us that God blesses his people not on the basis of our performance or our faithfulness, but on the fact that he is good. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
In the case of the Jews, God has promised that he will establish his people in the promised land, that he will raise up a savior from his chosen people, and he's going to do that whatever, period, even if he has to use spiritually adulterous people to accomplish it. That's a big part of the message of the book of Judges, and frankly, it's a big part of the message of the entire Old Testament. God's people in much of the Old Testament seem intent on destroying themselves. We see repeatedly, however, that God doesn't let their evil and rebellion have the last word. The greatest scholar in Judges is probably Daniel Block, and he says this about his sinful people in Judges. He has chosen them to be his agents of light and life to the world. He has rescued them from Egypt. He has entered into an eternal covenant with them, and he has delivered the land of Canaan into their hands as an eternal possession. In the final analysis, God cannot let his program abort. The mission of grace to the world depends on the preservation of his people. So against all odds, and certainly against Israel's deserts, the nation survives the dark days of the Judges. The true hero in the book is God and God alone. That's, that's true of the whole Bible. This is still a valid lesson for God's people because although the church of Jesus Christ has innumerably more spiritual resources than the Old Testament Jews had, we in the church of Christ too often look as if we have a pension for self-destruction. North American evangelical church isn't looking very good. Dr. Block does a good job of summarizing our own pension towards spiritual self-destruction. He's writing about the church in North America, okay? And he speaks of our preoccupation with material prosperity, which turns Christianity into a fertility religion, our syncretistic and apparent forms of worship, our refusal to obey the Lord's call to separation from the world, our divisiveness and competitiveness, our moral compromises as a result of which Christians and non-Christians are often indistinguishable, our male exploitation and abuse of women and children, our reluctance to answer the Lord's call to service, and our eagerness to fight the Lord's battles with the world's resources and strategies. When you see the church that way, which I think is pretty accurate, it becomes clear that it's only the kind of grace that God puts on display in the book of Judges that enables us to look at the sick institutional church with all of its compromise and still believe the promise of Matthew 16:18, which says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now please don't get the wrong idea. Those in the church who, like Gideon, are nothing more than spiritual phonies will eventually taste God's judgment, okay? And we'll see that in the book of Judges. There are surely many people who attend evangelical churches who, like Gideon, look good on the outside, but they don't want God. They have no affection. They have no personal regard for him. Although they aren't aware of it like the Jews and Judges, they just use God to give them what they want. But, like Gideon, for years and years on this earth, those false converts can drink deeply of God's grace. He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Now, if that bothers us, then we don't understand our own need of grace, our own need of the gospel, because this same God who was so patient and kind with his people and judges is also loving and kind and patient and merciful to us, and we need every drop of his mercy. Now we can respond to his mercy by trying to take advantage of him, that carries catastrophic consequences. Paul says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Or, we can take this mind-numbing grace of God 
and respond the way God intends. And that is, by God's grace, to internalize this goodness of God and his saving love for us that could never be dependent upon our performance. And with our heads bowed and our hearts humbled in contrite tones, whisper prayers like, whatever you want from me, God, I am yours. You write the check. You fill in the amount. I'll sign it whatever you put there, money, time, energy, because I can do nothing less for a God like you. That's the gospel. That's the correct response to the grace of God. That's what Paul's thinking about in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's the pattern, right? God's kindness, his grace, and his mercy to us, if we understand and if we believe it, the kind of grace he shows in Judges to Gideon will not lead us to take advantage of that, but will stimulate us to live lives marked by repentance as an expression of our humble love and gratitude toward this God who blows up all of our boxes with his goodness and his grace. The Jews of this time period in Gideon never got this. Most of the Jews in the Old Testament Never got this. As far as we know, Gideon died in his idolatries, and as we'll see next week, his legacy was even more sad and gruesome. Justice does always eventually come in God's economy, but how are we going to live in response to this gracious, long-suffering God? That's the question. If you meet yourself, as I so frequently do in Gideon, having an orthodox outward profession but inwardly seeking after the things of this pagan world, come to the cross and repent of your sin. Jesus died on a cross to forgive us, but he also died on a cross to give us the power to kill our sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, come to him, repent of him, confess your sins, Receive his death on the cross as full payment for the punishment of your sins. Trust in him, not in anything you could ever do. Trust in him alone. You'll find that he'll adopt you. You'll find that he'll love you. You'll find that he gives this unspeakable grace to you for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the tensions of the Bible which always lead us two remarkable places in you. They highlight something of your character. Father, we don't, we don't want to be like Gideon, but we want to receive the grace that he gave. We want to receive the mercy that you gave him. Father, if there's anyone here who is living like Gideon, where what they say doesn't match what they do, God, I pray that you'd give them the grace to repent and that your kindness toward them would be the motivator behind that, not because you're sitting up in heaven with your bony finger poking in their ribcage, but because you're a God who loved this world enough to send his son, a sinless savior, to die a gruesome and brutal death on the cross. Father, by your spirit, make that real to each one of us and help us in response to live in joy and gratitude to you. For Jesus' sake and in his name.
Amen.